Welcome to episode 312 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got a good interview today. Yes, we do. Today we caught up with Diana Mounter, aka Broccolini, to answer a listener question that someone sent in on our GitHub repository. So we'll get into that shortly, but first some follow-up. Yeah, not a whole lot of follow-up, but we did get some feedback on our previous episode, episode 311, in which we made many 311 references, and listener Keaton Taylor wrote in to let us know that the 311 references made him lol pretty hard, well played. Lol. That's what we were going for. As long as one person appreciated it, it was worth it. Thank you, Keaton. <laughs> well done. We are paid in lols, so thank you for, <laughs> yeah. for sending us that sweet, sweet payment. Yeah, and the only other thing I wanted to call out was the feedback to the GitHub repository using issues for listener questions seems to be working. I noticed a bunch of folks have starred and watched that repo, which seems like maybe that's a useful thing so people could you know, get notified when new questions are asked and when questions are answered. So that seems pretty cool. But speaking of which, we have a listener question today that came through the, the design details repo. And we enlisted the help of good friend of the pod, Diana Mounter, a.k.a. Broccolini, to help us answer. So with that, let's get into our interview with Diana Mounter. Welcome to Design Details, Diana. Thank you. It's great to have you back. (laughs) (laughs) We looked and it's been a year and a half, I I suppose. Mm -hmm. So pre-Marshall. Yeah, (laughs) pre-Marshall. Pre-new era. So for (laughs) listener context, Diana's been on the show three times in the past as a guest, and we'll have links to those in the show notes. But uh, for people who aren't familiar, Diana, could you tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words? Sure. Uh, Yeah, my name is Diana. I am called Broccolini on most of the internet. I have been working at GitHub for about three and a half years, um, starting off as an IC and then leading design systems. And now I manage the design infrastructure org there. And I work for GitHub remotely in Brooklyn, New York. Wonderful. Well, we had a listener question, I guess two weeks ago. Yeah, nine days ago. That was specifically about being a design systems manager. And I thought, who better to answer this question than you? Mm-hmm. So let's jump right in. This question comes from a person with a username that I'm not sure is a name, nor do I know how to pronounce it. I think it's... Agabrands. Agabrands. Agabrons. Agabrons asks, what is the role of a design systems manager and what is expected of this individual? Now, I know you can't speak for all design systems managers ever, but you've been doing this for a little while. So yeah, what do you think is the role of a design systems manager? What is the role? Yeah, this is like going to give me like a life crisis. I'll be like having an existential (laughs) like, oh my gosh, what is my role? What am I doing? Who am I? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of things. I, I guess I was trying to sort of think what is different about being a manager of a design systems team to perhaps like something like a, a product design manager. Um, so I might start there and we'll see if I make any sense. Yeah. I think the thing that is the standout difference to me, at least at GitHub, and everything has the asterisks of it depends, is that I manage a sort of multidiscipline team. So I have systems designers and I have engineers and I have a graphic designer as well. Um, And so one of the things that is is different is then I need to be able to manage and and help mentor those different types of disciplines. 
the other thing that is is true right now on my team, but I, I, I'm sure it will change at some point in the next year or two, is that I also do a lot of the project management and, and road mapping for the team. Um, we don't have APM, so I'm sort of wearing a few different hats because sometimes I'm in sort of PM mode and I'm not trying to say I'm a PM, but I'm doing some of the work that, that they would do. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. And sometimes I am in sort of wearing the hat of an engineering manager. Again, wouldn't say that's exactly what I am, but I'm probably overlapping with some of the things that they need to think about. And then I'm wearing the, the design manager hat. So that isn't true everywhere. I know that some teams have PMs and engineering managers, but at GitHub, we don't yet. And so I'm, you know, that's one of the big differences. And so I'm trying to think like how that changes the expectations, but I think a lot of design systems teams start off small. And so I feel like the sort of wearing many hats type thing is going to be common at, um, at the beginning for many companies. Of those three like roles that you're filling, are there any that you're totally foreign to or have been the hardest to ramp up on? I think it's it's been hard for me to manage engineers in the sense that I have this constant sort of concern. I was going to say fear. I probably started off as fear and now I've gotten used to it a bit more of, you know, doing the right thing because I, I haven't, you know, had a career as an engineer. I'm a I would describe myself as a designer that codes and I've done a significant amount of front-end development, but I wouldn't call myself an engineer. So, and I, I'm sure it's always painful for people to have managers that know enough to, uh, to be dangerous, but <laughs> uh -huh. don't actually know your role exactly. So I, that's something I like really, I, I guess I feel some imposter syndrome about sometimes and I'm very conscious of, and I try to do my best to sort of not to, to trust um, their opinion, but also still to be a leader and make decisions. And so that, that's a little difficult, not going to lie. <laughs> Have you found anything that's been useful at making that less difficult? The main thing is that I, I, I guess I just remind myself of the fact that I've done, you know, I've been an IC um, working on design systems and I've had a number of years doing that and, and leading that sort of team. And so I try and remind myself to be confident about the things that I do bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And so I can talk a lot about things that are sort of fairly technical, even though even though they might not be sort of as deep as, as some of the engineering work might need to go on my team. So I might talk about design system APIs or something like that. And so I try and use the language that, you know, is understandable to an engineer but i also try not to talk about things that i don't really know about as well yeah like let the experts be the experts yes i think that's important no matter what your job is is to just admit when you don't know something or don't understand something on the the pm side of that though i think that one's really interesting as well because like you can also be a pm and that can be a super specialized role and i'm wondering if how the ramp up's been for you to do that in addition to all the other design and engineering stuff. Yeah, so I have some experience um, from back when I was in Australia. I used to do a lot of um, project management, not the same as, as PMing, but that gave me some sort of, you know, tools to work with um, from that experience. And so a bit of a mix of that and then observing um, how PMs work what seems to be like the 
output and artifacts of, of a good PM, thinking back to what I found really helpful when I've worked with them, and then just really just seeking a lot of feedback and, and sort of not going too far with like developing roadmaps or priorities and without getting like insights from other folks. Okay. Anytime you say like, these are the good things that I should be doing more of, I, I want to dive deeper. So you said like, I had to remind myself of what are the good artifacts of, of a good PM? Like what, what are those artifacts and uh, what have you figured out as a good system for you know, like output on that PMing side of things? Mm. I think the thing that is top of my mind, which might not be the most exciting thing, is just being able to document and codify like what the roadmap is in a way that is captures like the main points is I think is easily repeatable. I think that's maybe sometimes undervalued. You want other team other teams to just sort of stumble across that stuff and take bites out of it and repeat it elsewhere and be able to say, oh, I know what this team is doing, they're doing this. And so that's the thing that pops into my head most is is not writing something that is an essay, but has enough detail and depth that it gives the team the sort of shining star of where they're heading, outlines important things that, that help them get there, like if we have existing information whether it's research or data or whatever to look back on that is relevant to this project and what the key milestones are so that they know um, if there's certain deadlines or certain things they need to hit who the stakeholders are internally often design systems work is touching a lot of different parts of the product and and features that have feature teams working on them so we often need to do a lot of communication and getting feedback from those sort of like domain experts as well so knowing that is really important to um, when starting off a project and like who's who's the customer and like why are we doing this thing and I you know I wouldn't say that I've mastered the art of this yet but it's something that I'm I learn things about how to like frame that roadmap from a lot of different sources and it's not just PMs. There's uh, a, an engineering lead that I think writes uh, called um, Nathan Herald that I think writes really succinct sort of like outlines for for projects and I borrowed some ideas for, from his work as well as, you know, I get inspired by the other product design managers um, and um, and Max who's, who's um, the uh, director of product design um, or even like other designers like Kathy and how um, she sort of is great at storytelling and framing things so the inspiration for sort of how to lay out and set out that that roadmap um, in a way that tells people the important things without sort of giving all the specifics because you want the individuals to figure that out yeah is yeah it comes from a lot of different sources one thing you said that i think is a particularly unique challenge to design systems teams is understanding the customer because it seems as though there are multiple and you have to roadmap for both of them Mm -hmm. it's like in my head i could imagine one set of customers is the internal design team that has to use and implement and and design Mm -hmm. with the the system that gets built then of course there's the engineering customers that have to use it and deal with those apis and and augment it and extend it and then of course there's the actual people at the end of the other side of the screen using your product where the system is meant to 
provide, uh, you know, like be intuitive and understandable and have consistent metaphor and uh, work in similar ways in different contexts, right? Like you have this really wide set of customers. I'm curious how you think about each of those groups at the road mapping stage, at the prioritization part of your job. Yeah, thinking about those three. Yeah, I think the most relevant project where it's been interesting to think about that um, recently was with our work on responsive and, and sort of improving the mobile web experience. So we we had initially um, thought about that project as a technical debt project, um, if you will, or that, that was one of the goals. So it has been a, a, a bit of a maintenance overhead to, to maintain the separate mobile site. And so initially, one of our goals was like, let's deprecate that. And another goal that was more like design team facing was to pave the way for other teams to more easily ship responsive views. Mm -hmm. And so that means having some examples of that actually implemented in the product, as well as um, lots of great documentation, demos, and more responsive design patterns built into our design system, like a lot of how-to stuff. And if we had kept with that, that would have meant different priorities and focus for the project. But we ended up having discussions with a few different folks and, and some of this, uh, the mobile site had come up a fair bit to other members of the organization and we had been doing some like customer interviews. And when we sort of, sort of thought about that feedback, we realized that the project actually needed to be about the GitHub customers, people using the site. And that changed our priorities because then we started to look at, okay, what are the parts of .com that people most use on, on mobile or want to use? What are those features? And so we discovered things like, which can sound really simple, like things like people wanting to be able to add a label to an issue when they're creating it on mobile. And so if we had, like, gone with that initial sort of goal of like let's make this easy for design teams like github staff and let's reduce our own like maintenance overhead we would have prioritized things differently and so that is like interesting to me because now we yes we are like sort of deprecating some stuff as we go and yes it's still a goal to create more like mobile design patterns and documentation but it's more important to deliver this thing to customers. And so some things where in some cases we're creating responsive views that don't exist on mobile. So that's not helping our sort of technical debt of getting rid of the separate mobile site. Mm -hmm. And then some some are. And so that's great. We kind of like get both those wins. Do you think that the answer is always to think about the end user or have you found situations where for the design systems team, the end user actually isn't a valid stakeholder in whatever you're working on? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think that's been a, a topic that's come up like at work and, and in, I guess, at various conferences and meetups I've been to lately. I I think that there is, you know, the customers of the product are, are always still the customers of the design system because people use the design system to build the product that gets to, you know, to yeah, customers. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it it's helpful to remind ourselves of that. And then other times it's not necessarily to sort of go back to sort of point zero, you know, and sometimes we need to sort of be, you know, focusing on like something more detailed that is a, 
a part of the system that that you know fits together with other sort of more holistic things so it does depend <laughs> no <laughs> Off limit. you can't say that on this show what are you talking I know, about <laughs> I know, sorry I, I think it's like anything like we need to zoom in and zoom out sometimes and i don't think it hurts to remind ourselves like why we're doing this thing um and it's more relevant with you know some things so like if we're talking about accessibility, for example, we we are probably going to spend some more time thinking about the customer, but then we also are going to spend some time thinking about the developer experience and making it easier and more like self and more of a self serve experience so that developers can implement like UI in an accessible way. Out of the box, yes, yeah. The way you make it better for external customers is making it easier for internal customers. Yeah, you, you should have just said that. <laughs> that was the answer. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find that tension to be really fascinating, especially, I, you know, I guess having the context of being on the GitHub design team is there is this tension of like, how do we make things really easy to consume and use for the design team? I think there seems in my mind to be some tension between prioritizing that, which would look like design tools and components and symbols and all this kind of stuff versus the more product facing stuff like responsiveness, accessibility, like arguably more important. But then you do have this cohort of users, which is the design team, right? Yeah, and it's it's tricky. I'm not gonna not gonna lie. Um, I think that there are definitely things that are not ideal about working on directly customer facing things like responsive, as well as also maintaining and evolving the system. And you could argue that our time is better spent just directly focusing on the design system, but when we're creating new things and new patterns, it's immensely helpful for us to understand what is difficult about that to developers and designers at GitHub. And we learn that really well by actually doing the some of that work ourselves. So we're trying to like find this balance between like doing that customer facing work and, and evolving the design system. Um, I think ideally in future, we might get to a place where we don't need to and don't do any of that sort of customer facing work like directly like on the product and we spend all our time on the actual design system the tooling behind it because if we make that really really great then it should be easy for other people to use and do all, and 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 do that work themselves yeah and then in theory you've distributed the responsibility to the design team right like each product owner should be using that system in a way that is responsive and accessible and and not require you to necessarily have to jump in. Yeah, I think it's really just the reality right now is we just sort of don't quite have that luxury with the number of staff. And so I, I sometimes get frustrated when I see sort of advice tweets on Twitter <laughs> or like quotes in talks where it's like this is this ideal world and and in reality you often have a lot of other factors to deal with mm-hmm. and and so yeah it's not always as simple as <laughs> like yeah yeah design systems people should just work on the design system full stop done okay go <laughs> yeah Well, that's actually kind of a nice segue into the second half of this question. Such a short question, but uh, we're expounding on it very well. So the (laughs) the first part was, what's the role of a design system manager? And then the second part is, what is expected of this individual? So I think this is perhaps related, but... (laughs) Can my answer be a lot? (laughs) (laughs) 
do the job of three people and <laughs> get everything right. Solve customer facing and internal problems. Yeah. Get everything right. It has to be perfect the first time. But yeah, like, can you talk a little bit about the expectations? And I guess maybe a useful way to think about this is like, how do you measure success? And I know that it will be different for different companies, but maybe you have some ideas of measures of success for design systems that have not worked in the past and what you've learned from that. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Rem- remind me of that second one in case I forget, because you, I, I do like to tangent. Expectations. It, this is really interesting, and I kind of want to go and ask like uh, my current and previous managers what their <laughs> expectations were of me. Yeah, I think that a really important one is is that you need to be able to make decisions, and that requires some amount of you know being opinionated. I think because design systems teams often have a lot of competing priorities, as as you know, as we've just discovered. And there are, you know, endless ways of doing things like whether it's like how you decide to prioritize or how you decide to like design a particular component or how do you decide to create your color system, for example. And and so it's really easy to just bike shed on that stuff um, for ages. And so I think like being able to make decisions is incredibly important. And you could probably argue that's important of any sort of um, leadership role. But that's the thing that sort of, you know, pops into my head. And I think you also need to be really good at, if we talk about like early on, perhaps, I think you need to be really good at finding those sort of sort of low hanging fruit and really impactful wins. Because for some reason, you know, I think it's just by nature you, you sort of have to win friends with design systems. People, if it's new to a company that has been operating in a certain way and hasn't had a design system or a team uh, maintaining it before, that's change. Um, you're sort of asking people to use a, a, a new set of constraints and, you know, you have to sort of evangelize it a bit and promote it and you have to help people understand the, the why behind that. So, yeah, I think like decision making so that you can really lead the team and help them keep making progress, finding the impactful win- wins. And then as you scale, um, as you grow, it's, you know, you, there's endless amounts of um, sorts of things that are going to change and, and become important and I think just remembering to take a sort of stop check and say, like, is what was the priority, you know, six months or a year ago still really, really important right now? Right. I I don't know if that, like, fully answers the question of, like, what's expected of you. But if I was sort of, say I was hiring a a design system manager to take over a bunch of the work I've been doing, that would be really, really important to me. I think the other thing that would be important to me is just having really uh, deep knowledge of design systems. Like I would not want to try and be a manager for a design systems team if I hadn't done some of that work myself, if I hadn't been an IC making decisions about should this component have these many props or these many variations versus not how flexible versus constrained should we be? So, you know, I don't think that I would require that, oh, you must have worked on a design systems team full time, but just having some experience in making those difficult decisions. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It seems non-controversial, but I suppose that there might be managers out there who haven't done that and feel that the role is perhaps doesn't require that. I'm not sure. But 
in my head, that makes sense. And I think I would agree with it, that having that experience would make the job easier or at least build credibility in the decision-making process. Yeah, yeah, because I think you need to be able to, when it's when the team is small, I think you need to be able to help when they, when discussions go down like sort of a bit of a bike shedding path. I'm curious how much I've said that word now. <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is something on your mind, Diana? Are you bike shedding something right now? <laughs> I was just, you know, thinking back to the early days and, and some very long discussion threads. Yeah, I think you, I think you need to be able to come in and say, well, you know, I understand the merits of this and I understand the merits of this, but we let, let's go this direction. Now, as my team is, you know, as I've hired more and our team has like grown quite a lot, I'm really, when I see someone struggling with making those decisions themselves, I'm sort of thinking, okay, how did I learn to do that? And how can I now take that knowledge out of my head and try and help them learn it and go through, or can I, how can I help them go through the experiences and have the opportunities that they need to like internalize that knowledge themselves? Ooh, tell me more there. I guess we could (laughs) perhaps abstract this to like advice for product designers who want to work on design systems like what are the things that you need to Mm. know or ramp up on or things that you could be studying ahead of time to prepare better for that kind of role yeah so I have been thinking about this a bit because we just recently had an intern on our team and I and I was sort of thinking like what's some advice I can give them and they were also asking what advice can I give other people from my university they're interested in this and it got me thinking and I think number one maybe it's not number one in priorities but it's the first (laughs) it's it's number one right now it's the first thing that I've thought of is is to use design systems like go like use uh, material design or or um, apples hig and like build a bunch of like interfaces with it even if you're repeating something else and just using other design systems helps you sort of start to understand um, how they might help make things easier. It also might help you observe things that you don't like, and, you, and that might help you start to grow and form some af- opinions about how design systems work. Should designers have opinions, Diana? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Is it possible for designers to not have opinions, Diana? Is <laughs> it? Yeah. My right. opinion is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. please give us your opinion on that. Sorry, I cut you off. I just had to slip that one in. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's fine. That's fine. We are designers too, so you know. Yeah, so like, yeah, use just use some design patterns. Like, you know, the other thing I think is is you know if you can create the time, even whether it's in in code or design, like if it's Figma or it's just HTML, CSS, or your you've got some coding experience in React or whatever it is, like actually try and build your own component library, like build, give yourself like a project, even if it's just your sort of personal site and start and build a design system for it. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, a little bit smaller, that will just start to teach you some things too. I actually decided um, last time, I wouldn't say I have the best design like personal site in the world or anything, and I definitely need to update it. But last time I rebuilt it and redesigned it because it's another thing that designers like to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> is I decided to build the design system first. I decided to like build the components first. I did like a sketch of how I wanted it to look. And then I decided to build it from building the components and setting the sort of foundational things like colors and typography and that was just like really interesting. 
So I guess like in a way, I think tackle design systems from as many perspectives as possible. Like one as the customer of the design system by like using other like design systems that are out there because when you're someone that works on the team, you have to have empathy for the, what that experience is like. And then, yeah, build one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually do the thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's probably one thing I would like to add, like as just like a very core skill or thing that took me a while to realize how important it was, is that actually the API design, um, like your design system API, that's actually one of the most important things about your design system, because that is the sort of interface that designers and engineers are using. And until I that sort of I sort of grokked that and applied that engineering term to design systems, yeah, well, or not until, but like when I when I grokked that, that really helped me and it really helped me with communication. Because then when you start to think about that, you can talk about the public API versus the private API, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. I, I just have found that a super useful sort of term to understand and apply to design systems, and it's been really helpful with discussions with both designers and engineers. So actually, this is related to the second part of the question from earlier uh, around like how you or, or what's expected of the design system manager. But I wanted to know things that you tried in the past that you found didn't work or were bad measures of success. And it's sort of related to like evaluating your reports as well, right? Like how do you measure the success of, of each person's contributions and then the design systems overall? And uh, I think specifically, we wanted to know things that you experienced in the past that didn't work. Yeah, that's a really good and difficult question. I think one thing that pops to mind is just realizing you're going to rebuild this thing over and over again. <laughs> Until the heat death <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> wow, yeah. That, but, you know, turns out like a lot of people use the framing like design systems are a product, right? Serving other products. And in, in a way, that's very true. And just like products, you need to evolve them. And like because a design system is built to support, well, often support uh, to support a product or a website or whatever, it has to evolve with them. Um, you also just like learn that some. I mean, you get things wrong all the time. I mean, that's also part of being a designer. But uh, on design systems, you you have to make a call because you want to make keep making progress, and you really don't know if you've made the right decision, unless it's put to practice, and sometimes you're going to be wrong. So that's a thing. That's fun. I think there's been some times where I've approached a thing being like, you know, it. it's easy to do like the cookie cutter thing, like particularly if you've you've worked on a previous design system, you're like, this worked like really well mm-hmm. on this other situation. So it must be right. I don't need to resolve this problem. And then turns out that products work differently mm-hmm. and uh-huh. the user bases are different yeah, yeah yeah or even just like one one of the things that we had to like that was a bit painful to redo and and thanks to muan and john rohan who actually did the work of redoing this but at the time but we chose a, a, a spacing scale that was just didn't work for for github and we got quite a lot way through um, refactoring and, and distributing this and then we just like the sort of feedback kept coming in or slash complaints and we re- we realized it just wasn't working and and so we and we had to change it and that was a little painful because we had to update a lot of things what was the specific like layout structure that didn't work it was it was just literally our spacing scale so we we started off with a um a sort of 612 sort of pixel system so like github initially back in the day 
was like five, ten, fifteen pixels because people are like, I have five ha- five fingers, therefore <laughs> this must make sense as a spacing scale, and it doesn't because it's not a highly composable number. Uh-huh. Whereas, whereas twelve is better, but eight is even more better because pairs are two, and you know. Oh yeah. We've talked about this a lot on the show. <laughs> okay, well, so you can refer to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> the eight-point grid. <laughs> no, no, please go on. Please go on. I'd love to hear more. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll keep it short then. But, like, yeah, we. I think it's interesting maybe to hear why. No, for sure. I think that we thought that, you know, 6 and 12 and that would map better to the, the 5 and 10, 15 pixel one, and and it didn't. And, like, I personally prefer the sort of eight point grid system but i it we had we just made the wrong decision and made the wrong call like it seemed like that was going to work better and it just didn't and we didn't test stuff enough and it just keep yeah always be testing i guess so did you revert back to fives or did you go to eights or what'd you do no we went to to an eight point grid it we we have a half step as our first spacer which is four pixels but the reason it didn't like we had to sort of really think about that and design it for GitHub is GitHub is very dense. Mm-hmm. Like generally, like the, you want to see like a lot of lines of things and on the marketing pages, it's more spacious. And so you kind of need to, that's why we needed that sort of half step, even though it hurts me a little bit, because I just want everything to be evenly spaced. It uh-huh. has worked out for the majority of cases pretty well now. Yeah. It turns out four is highly composable. So yep, <laughs> it'll fit into basically any measurement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that half step, you get your 12 that you wanted anyways, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Everybody's happy. Uh-huh. We were... Well, we were talking about things that I had learned. So we got a little specific there. Sorry. Yeah, but that was one of the things was like knowing when uh, a decision was wrong. <laughs> yes. I think the other one that ha- that Brian, you may have picked up on that has has been a, a bit more recent thing that has been problematic is like, don't be the police hmm. um, of your own design system. Really, we need you need it to be everyone's design system. And we need we need like the product team and the developers to be kind of like the police, as it were. And um, they should be having discussions about this is not what how are we leveraging the system here or what why are we not using it here do we need to extend it and evolve it and i think that i'm not sure that i could like track back to exactly why we sort of fell into this place but it's partly because we do a lot of code review but we sort of fell into a place where we it we became the police whether we wanted to or not and that's something that we're working to change now but that that is something that has not been ideal. What's the strategy for changing that? Because I imagine if I'm projecting here, it, it seems like it might feel like you're giving up a lot of control or maybe worded differently, you're putting control into a lot of unknown hands that are doing a lot of unknown things in the product. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. The word control comes up a lot um, in design systems, Len. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, the way that we're approaching it is... Well, you know, it started off with, you know, talking with people and in talking with the the rest of the, the design systems lead where we've made it, uh, you know, as part of our OKRs, it's a shared responsibility. So it's not my it's not mine and my team's responsibility to help 
create an environment where the design system is seen as everyone's design system, that's actually, I'm not just responsible that the rest of the leadership team are. So that, that just writing that down is like helpful because they're then, you know, they're accountable for it too. And it's not just me. And so I think it's, it's about working together. I think that we've done a few like kind of evolutions of our various like design reviews. And I think one of the things that happened is, and why we sort of felt like the police is because we were sort of reviewing a lot of product design as well as design systems usage at the point of a PR, because we weren't creating more opportunities where those like surfacing that work and and the sort of variations that were needed or or the direction that that thing was going with, there wasn't enough opportunity for that. And I think we've started to correct that with some sort of recent new like design review type opportunities and sort of evolving existing ones. One of the parts of this process that I've always found to be challenging is that at the beginning of a product or a feature, it feels really useful to not use the system in many cases, unless the system's Brian. helping you move faster. No, Brian. <laughs> oh, no. No, what I mean here what is done? explore broadly, right? Like I want to explore sure. a wide palette of available decisions that might solve this user need. And some of those palettes or you know, some parts that might include pieces of the design system. And other parts might not. And this is where we get into like, all right, where are we going to extend? Where does the design system need to be augmented? But it's that initial exploratory phase that feels the scariest because I'm not sure that it's the right time to extend or right time. Like I'm wondering if I'm making the wrong decision, you know, or or if it's a restriction on the design system itself. Sure. Yeah, I have opinions on this. Surprise, surprise. I want them. <laughs> <laughs> one, I think it depends what problem you're trying to solve. And if it's if it's one that is really about, like, let's just say, like, interactions and flows, or particularly for flows and sort of the product experience, like, maybe it really isn't going to make a difference what a particular component looks like. You're really just saying, trying to figure out how does this, how should this feature work and you want to get it in the hands of like customers as soon as possible to get feedback. If you're doing something that is is very sort of greenfield and part of it is to sort of maybe refresh something, then that like sort of blue sky thinking is really important. And I'm a big fan of like divergent and convergent thinking and ha- having the space and opportunity to do that. But you can't you can't do one without the other in my mind, like because it works for the project. You might start from a place where you're doing a lot of sort of explorations, not worrying too much about the system because you need that freedom of creativity for, for whatever reason. But you still need to do the sort of convergent part and then sort of bring it back to like, how does this, like, what if I do apply the system directly? What is now, is there still now things not working? Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the divergent and convergent process seems useful in this particular scenario and also i promise i'm using the system as much as i can (laughs) (laughs) i know i know i've seen your work (laughs) all right well we've uh been chatting for 45 minutes so a agabrons who uh the person who asked this question hopefully they are satiated with all this talk on design system management but to wrap up the episode we always like to do cool things so do you want to start off 
and break the ice, or would you prefer Marshall and I to uh, introduce the segment for you? Don't give me a choice because I'm indecisive. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that you said designs this. I had to say that. I had to. <laughs> you know what? If it's wrong, we can roll it back. <laughs> <laughs> I no, I needed to say that because it was like literally the opposite of what I'd yeah, been yeah. saying earlier. <laughs> Okay, I have three things. Hit me. <laughs> Even though that's not allowed, you, you asked like about technology or like book or an album and I had things that popped into my head. So first off, my favorite new Slack plugin of the week, which we use at work, is the Bitmoji plugin because I love Bitmojis and I've gotten my whole team uh, to <laughs> oh, uh, start the day with a... Uh, Hello, Bitmoji, and I, I'm sure some of them hate me because. <laughs> but now that's all the more easier for with the Bitmoji plugin because you know when you just want to say reply with something witty and you can't quite find that perfect emoji, you can just like do the the, the forward slash and it'll pop the pop a Bitmoji up for you. So that's that's pretty like life changing, I would say. <laughs> life changing indeed. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. The second thing is is a book that I don't know whether it was this or somewhere else. Like someone recommended this book. It's called Read Me by Neil oh. Stevenson. Uh, Riamdi. Re what? It's, I think it's actually Riamdi, or like like the the M and the D are switched oh by my Neil God. Stevenson. I just, Holy shit! I just <laughs> wait. I'm like I have my I have it right here. Oh my god, you're right. I've been uh-huh. like reading this book all this time and I didn't notice. <laughs> but also, I, I'm looking at the cover and the words are colored so that it does, like the, it's colored R, E, A, and D are the same color and then M and E are the same color. So Those are really good. Have you guys ever been to a Jimmy John's before? It sounds like a, like a tangent, but I swear it, it makes sense. I have not. Yes. Okay, and in Jimmy John's, they have tons of like signage on the walls. Okay, one of the signs that they that I've seen in many Jimmy John's, I like Jimmy John's, tomato time for the win, <laughs> is that uh, they have this one thing where it's like, basically, it's it's two or three paragraphs. I'll see if I can find a, a picture of it and put it in the show notes. But there's two or three paragraphs, and every single word in each of those paragraphs is spelled incorrectly, but the first letter and the last letter of every word is is what the letters should be, and the uh, letters yeah. in between are mixed up. But your brain can still figure it out. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. You can read the paragraph as if it was is perfectly fine, but every word is misspelled. So maybe that's what happened here. It's like the words in the middle, the letters in the middle don't matter. Yeah, I just filled it in. But yeah, I think that's hilarious. So tell me about Riamdi. How do you pronounce it, though? Yeah, I, I always Riamdi. just said Riamdi in my head, but uh, I think the audiobook says how to pronounce it. But yeah, uh, we'll just go with Riamdi, whatever you want to say, Brooklyn. <laughs> so, yeah, so I haven't finished reading this book yet. But the reason why, one of the reasons why it's getting into the interesting part and um, it had this, uh, it kind of crossed two worlds for me because it had this whole section where I, I won't, I don't want to, you know, spoiler alert or anything. Um, so actually, yeah, this is the spoiler alert if you haven't read it. Wait, I haven't read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not going to add too much. I've read it. You can, you can spoil it. Should I actually <laughs> take my headphones off? It's not that much of a big thing. It's a draw, Brian. She's going she's gonna to give you a hook okay. to bring you in. Okay, to pull me in, pull me in. So there's this whole section because it's, it's to do, there's a component of the book that's about video games. And there's this whole section where they are talking about um, color and chaos theory. And I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating because 
as you probably know, Brian, I have an interest in color. I've heard, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we have been talking about this a bit lately. And I and I did a you know a few talks on this because I worked on GitHub's color system. But I just like loved this perspective on color. And now, even though I've done a lot of talks on color, I'm like, oh, I should do one that's inspired by this book. And I haven't finished reading it yet, but that that bit stood out to me. So there's a design systems kind of you know relation there. <laughs> well, so I know Marshall's a big Neil Stevenson fan. Have you read this one, Marshall? Uh, I have. That's how I knew how to pronounce the title. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hang on, this is all adding up. <laughs> yeah. Well, my one cool thing is going to be uh, a Neil Stevenson book, too. So perfect. Strap in. Ah, nice. Nice segue. Um, except that I have one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah sorry. <laughs> but wait, actually, can you give me the the one sentence synopsis? What's the book about for, for people who might want to check it out? Well, maybe Marshall will have a better idea because he's finished it. It's been a few years. Okay. It's fresher for you, I'm sure. I don't know if I fully know yet, but I think oh. it's about someone that is owns like a a gaming company and they're building something that's sort of likened to um world of warcraft and i think something weird is going to happen and that's that's the cliffhanger (laughs) okay so i've read snow crash and it's also about like computers and like digital worlds is it anything like that like similar themes i think it might be okay i'll have to check it out i'm pretty it, it seems like it's uh fairly i think it's a sci-fi book i would probably categorize it as that but i i really am only a certain amount of fruit yeah okay cool if memory serves well i remember not liking this one as much as snow crash for sure uh but oh, no. I, I remember this being one of his one of my least favorite of his books i still liked it a lot because neil stevenson's awesome but i remember it turning into like kind of like a action like dan brown style book towards the end or like towards the middle, it like turns into an action story. Well, I've never read a Dan Brown book, so like Da Vinci Code or any no, of those. No? no, okay, they're good. It's good candy. Interesting. It's candy. Okay, it, does, it doesn't fill you up, but it tastes good. I just liked it because of that color thing. So <laughs> please finish it. Don't let don't let this discourage you from finishing it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, at least I know there's more better ones to read. So. Should I say my third thing? Yes. Go for it. So my third thing is an album, which is um, the new Check, Check, Check album called Wallop. Check, Check, Check Walmart? What's it called? No, no, no. The band is called Check, Check, Check. It's three exclamation marks is the band name. Oh, wouldn't that be like bang, bang, bang? Everyone that I know, like, used to say Check, Check, Check. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. This is a bizarre name for an artist. <laughs> I sometimes have weird sayings for things being having lived in some other countries. Oh, so. <laughs> no, 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 no. Look on the Spotify bio. It can be pronounced by repeating any one syllable percussive sound three times. Huh. For example, chick, chick, chick. That's like um, that band Alt-J. The real name of their band is like Triangle. But the way you get the triangle symbol on a Mac is by pressing Alt-J or Option-J. Oh, my God. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's cool. Anyway, this this album so far has been good. It's probably not everyone's taste, but I like it. And it has some... It has... I think my favorite song right now is Off the Grid. And there's another song called In the Grid, which I feel like those could both, <laughs> oh my God, both Diana. be blog post titles for You've like gone design too systems. Deep. <laughs> Is it track eight or track five? That's the question. Oh my uh, God. Track I... four and track three. <laughs> track eight, track four, and track 12. At least yeah. one of them is track four because that's on the spacing scale. So there you go. Right. 
and it's <laughs> a minute and a half long. Ooh, a half length song on the half scale measurement. Oh, <laughs> shit. Uh-oh. He's pulling into Got a, a hole. couple designers over <laughs> here. <laughs> cool. Uh, actually, what, what genre is this? Or how would you categorize it? This is like somewhere between like alternative and there's like, this this album has like more sort of an electronic influence. Like I can notice certain sounds. Like I am honestly the worst at describing music genres. So <laughs> sure, me too. It's okay. like Jackson's going to be really mad with me for this explanation. <laughs> but yeah, it, sound, it has some sounds that I recognize from maybe like Korg or 808 or something like that, but it's still like very, you know, like guitar heavy and stuff. So yeah, I would say alternative-y electronic and then... I'll learn what the real genre is later and update you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. Uh, well, I have Walt pulled up, so I'll, I'll take a listen. Cool. Cool. Well, Marshall, maybe this is appropriate for you to go next then. Okay, yeah. I too am going to share a Neil Stevenson novel. So, all right. Uh, this one is his newest one. It just came out, I think, in July. It's called Fall, Semicolon, or Dodge and Hell is the full name of, of that, which, which I was like, what the hell? Wow. This doesn't make any sense what is this book about? Having read the book, it makes perfect sense. It's amazing title. I love the title. Did you finish it? Yeah, I finished it. For context, I encountered this book in a bookstore and it's like 900 pages. I listened to the audiobook and it was like 30 hours or something like that. Yeah. The scale of this thing is fairly large. Really massive. Yeah. What's really interesting about it, and here's my pitch for it, is if you listened to the episode where I recommended the Bobiverse trilogy... You'll recall that the setup for that book is a game designer. Neil has a Neil has a thing, but a game designer signs himself up for like a cryogenic freezing thing, and then forgets about it, and then dies suddenly and gets cryogenically frozen and wakes up later as an AI. Right. The setup for this book is exactly the same. It's the exact same thing. A a, a rich game uh, developer a guy who owns a company dies suddenly after having set up this uh, cryogenic freezing thing and is later woken up. But because it's a Neil Stevenson book and and not the other series, it goes a very, very different direction from there and um, incorporates a lot of the stuff that his books include, like language and religion and lore and philosophy and technology and like a large cast of characters and a long time span that the book covers, like uh, not as much as Seven Eves. I don't know if you read that. That's like that book is Ooh, like centuries. That one is awesome. Yeah, this is this is more like decades, but still, it's a far-reaching, large-scope biblical tome. It's it's crazy, but it was really good, and it ended. He's gotten better at writing endings, so that's a thing to look forward to if you end up reading it. I want to read it, but when I saw that it was 900 pages, oh, so intimidating. This is why I like reading on my iPhone now, because I don't really notice how many pages. I don't know where I am in the book, mm-hmm. and then I get more immersed. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it shouldn't matter. Like, if the, the story is the story, it just seems like a big commitment. I don't know. Do a, get the audiobook, or, or, you know, I can lend you the audiobook through Audible, and just, like, listen to it when you take dog on walks. Uh, I get... I can't do audiobooks. I just get too distracted. I think about other stuff. But I'll take you up on that and get through the first few chapters and see if it's a hook to to pick it up. Yeah, I mean, 
the hook probably doesn't hit you until later. <laughs> until page 480. <laughs> it's a slow burn. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 30 hours, so it's a pretty slow burn. But the places it goes, it's like, it turns into like a Tolkien novel. It's crazy, man. It's fucking nuts. All right. Well, cool thing. My cool thing is also a book. It's one I finished this week, and it's called How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. And Ooh. I'm kind of obsessed with stories and movies about time and manipulating time and where time doesn't work the same for everybody and this book is about a group of people that have a rare condition where they age at one tenth to one fifteenth of the speed of normal people oh my gosh so instead of living up like 90 years most people that have this condition live 900 years. Oh. They're also like a teenager for a lot longer. <laughs> yeah, so it, it the condition appears when they're a teenager. So you basically turn 13 and then oh. and then it starts. So you're not an infant for 10 years? I was like, like yeah, that yeah. would suck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would suck. I'm more interested in now. <laughs> no, it starts when your life gets interesting. Yeah. It's like when you're it's a, that's when your mutant powers manifest in the X-Men world. When you're right? 13? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it, it's like a puberty thing. Oh. Well, yeah, I guess it's like that. So at puberty, you get this condition. And so anyways, you meet the main character named Tom Hazard when he is 41 years old. So for him, he's 400 and some years old, technically. But he appears as though he is a 41-year-old man living in modern times. Wow. And I don't know. (laughs) The books, it's a love story. It basically alternates between experiences that he had in the 16, 17, 18, and 1900s, and what he's doing today in modern day London. And so each chapter sort of bounces back and forth between these timelines. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of obsessed with stories where time works differently for certain people. And I kind of want to know what it would be like to live for 500, 1000 years. So I enjoyed reading it. That's how to stop time. Cool. Is it is it long? Is it what's the is it Stevenson length? No, term? it was three hundred pages, so like a week maybe. I like the sound of both of these books. Yeah, yeah. This is the problem with this podcast, Diana. Is Marshall <laughs> and I? We've gone down such a rabbit hole of book recommendations. We have such great taste that it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my backlog of books is swelling and not getting uh, narrowed as quickly as it should. And I'm I'm faster at plowing through these things than he is. So I, I'll get through something that was recommended. And I'll be like, did you finish it yet? Did you finish it yet? I want to talk about it. Like this yeah. fall book. Like, let's talk about it. Oh, he hasn't started yet. Okay. <laughs> and I won't start or I won't finish it for another year. <laughs> yeah, I can't honestly really. I was like, I feel like I had this book. I think it was called 2312. Like, and I, I feel like it took me like a year to read it because I kept it was a big it was a physical book and and it was quite big. And it and I kept like picking it up and putting it down. It was interesting. It was just like it wasn't convenient. And when I started reading books on my iPhone, I just I get through a lot, lot more now. Interesting. You work from home, right? Yeah. So when are you reading on your phone? Just whenever you want to read? I, I usually read fiction at night or when I'm like on an airplane or waiting for stuff. Um, on my iPhone. And then if it's like and I think it's helpful to take my mind off work before I fall asleep. And then I listen to audiobooks for like nonfiction because if I try and read like a book about stuff that I really want to pay attention to for <laughs> my job, I yeah. start falling asleep because I read books <laughs> at night. <laughs> yeah. And I want to read it when I'm more alert, like in the day. So um, that audiobooks work for me like that. Nice. 
All right. Well, we got five cool things. Pretty good. <laughs> it's a decent haul for a single episode, for sure. Yeah. It's not on the spacing scale, though, so that's sad. Oh, shit. We need to subtract <laughs> one or add three. Three more cool things. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've recorded another pod- whole podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll, right. we'll wrap up on Monday morning. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and answer this question, Diana. Yeah, thank you, great. Diana. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show again. It was really fun. Where should people follow you on the internet for more on design systems? Because I know you do talk about this on the internet. Yeah. So, I mean, I think just, yeah, on Twitter, I'm Broccolini. But if you want to learn from not just me, but my team, um, we have a, we're on Spectrum. (gasps) So, yeah, you can find us on Spectrum chat. Our channel is Primer. So, yeah, like, if you want to hear from the breadth of knowledge that is across my amazing team, like, find us there. Sweet. Well, thanks again so much. This has been great. Thank you. Well, that was our interview. Thank you again so much to Diana for taking the time to chat with us from her closet. uh, We had a little (laughs) bit of audio, I guess, snafus at the beginning. And we discovered that if Diana recorded in her closet with the door shut, the audio quality was best. So thank you for your sacrifice. That's what we told her, at least. And she went along (laughs) with it. Yeah, we were just Uh, fucking with her. (laughs) She just played a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, really. It was really echoey until she got into the closet. Yeah. better. But yeah. Thanks for thanks for uh, suffering through that interview, Diana, and uh, hopefully you, the listener, got something out of it. Indeed. Let us know what you thought. That was 312 episodes of Design Details. Tweet at us. Let us know what you thought. Give us feedback, suggestions, ideas. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. And if you have questions, you can ask them in the Design Details repository. All the links are in the show notes, uh, but that'll be on GitHub. Create an issue with your question, and we will close that issue when we answer it on the show. If you need more podcasts for your ears, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just like you. Those shows, as well as design details, are produced by our master editors, producers, extraordinaire, Sarah and Drew. They make us sound smarter than we really are. So thank you, Sarah and Drew. Another week, another episode. In the can. In the can. That's it. We'll catch you next week. Bye.